Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Let's open up to the book of 2 John. Uh, right after 1 John, you should know where that is. Um, as, as you know, we just finished the book of 1 John, right? And so uh, we're going to go to the second book of 2 John, just 13 verses this morning in 2 John. So that's the whole book. 13 books. And then, and then you're in for a treat because the following week is 3 John, just 15 verses. And so, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and hit them uh, one right after the other there. As I, as I just mentioned, 2 John's only 13 verses. 13 verses. And historically, the, the Apostle uh, John is the author of this. Uh, 2 John was thought to be penned while John was an old man at basically in Ephesus, somewhere between the year 85 and 95 AD, and so about 50 or 60 years, if you think about it, 50 or 60 years right after Jesus died. So 50 or 60 years, if you can, some of you can think back 50 or 60 years, that's about how long after Jesus died uh, that this was about written. And a lot of historical events have happened in that amount of time. Uh, the church has been born, it's been persecuted, uh, it's been scattered, it's been established in the Gentile world, so it kind of, it it took off and, and spread out. It's all over Europe and Asia and all these other places. And by this time this letter was written, um, probably all the apostles are dead. They've been martyred, uh, except for John, obviously. All the apostles are gone. The apostle Paul is, is dead at this time. Nero would have persecuted the church 20 or 30 years prior to this. Jerusalem would have already fallen to the Romans and been decimated. Um, and so false prophets and teachers are all over the place. They're, 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 they're scattering out through all the churches. And so it, it's, it's, uh, you're kind of entering the, the age of the persecuted church. It's, it's pretty, pretty perilous times here. And so John, at the time of writing this, he's, he's well advanced in years. He's like 90 years old, somewhere around there. And he's still shepherding the flock of God that God gave him all those years earlier, 50 years earlier, if you remember um, uh, at the end of John, he's talking to Peter and Peter says, hey, you know, or the Lord says to Peter, basically, you know, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, take care of it. And then basically he's talking and John's there as well. And Peter goes, well, what about that guy? Because Peter says, I'm going to die basically upside down. We find out from church history, all that stuff, he's going to die a, cruci- a crucified death. And he goes, well, what about John? Like, how, isn't he going to get taken out too? <laughs> it kind of, seems like Peter's saying, like, what's going on with that guy? And, and uh, he says, you know, if he stays until my return, uh, what's that to you? You follow me, Peter. And it was kind of prophetic because Jesus, here John is. He's an old man. He's the last of the remaining apostles. The last of the remaining apostles. Can you imagine what a treat that would be to be in the same room as, as John the Apostle, an old man, 90 years old, and to sit there and look at this man who has actually been there and touched Jesus and walked with him and was there at the cross and saw him. And how you watch this guy change over the years, you know, from the son of thunder, from someone who wanted to call down um, fire on people and have them burned to a crisp, you know, Lord, can I please use this superpower? And he's to the, uh, uh, the apostle of love. It's just an amazing thing. So here John is, yeah, he's writing to the church 50 years later, still shepherding uh, the flock. And so the themes of 2 John are very similar to 1 John, but, very, but it's not as, you know, 1 John's very difficult to follow if you didn't, if you went through the last study I had with you, I mean, it's difficult to follow. You know, he kind of says things and wraps back around to him and says something. He's using all this typology and all this stuff. It was difficult, but... Second John and Third John, they're as clear as a bell, and so it's it's these are different. They're kind of a break from his from First John there, and in in but the same themes are still talked about in Second John. He's still going to talk about truth according to love. That's the main theme. But he's going to be talking about um, truth, love, obedience, and along with warnings about false teachers and apostles who were kind of creeping in and their methods of doing that, and so. Um, you know, John's still teaching there. But the, the main theme of, of 2 John is basically truth according to love. That, that love has parameters, especially when it comes to the area of hospitality. And we're going to get into that. But because the letter's short, let's just read through it real quickly. Verses 1 through 13. 2 John 1 through 13. It says, The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. 
And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God, the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that I have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the command, just as you heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver, is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teachings has has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive them into your house or give them any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Verse 12, though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So, Father, as we enter into this this uh, section of Scripture, God, we ask that you would just illuminate our hearts, God. Give us your truth. Um, it's truth we've heard before, Lord, and we ask, Lord, that you'd make it fresh and new for us. Speak to the situations we're in and the times we're living in, um, that we would live uh, in the truth according to love, and we love you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the first part of verse 1 gives us the author. That's, that's just starting off. This is a typical... Uh, letters, how they worked, basically. Because it was written on a scroll, you didn't put your, your name at the end because you'd have to undo this big giant scroll to find out who wrote it. No, they put it at the beginning. This is who it is, who you're writing to, and at the end, they kind of say hello from everybody. But the, it says right there in verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children. And so John identifies himself here as the elder. Now there's two major thoughts about what does he mean by elder. And uh, some, some think the term elder can just be referring to his age, which is true. Obviously, again, John's in his 90s, and this could probably be the case. But most likely, John's referring to the fact that he's an elder of the church, John the Elder. Um, he was one of the 12 apostles and therefore an elder in the church. Remember, at this point, John's the last remaining apostle, and it seems best to understand this because John's going to start to talk to um, the elect lady here. Uh, we're going to talk about in a second. He's going to talk in authoritative terms. He's going to remind her of the truth. He's going to warn her about uh, people are going to come in and, and try to uh, basically shipwreck their faith. And so I believe he's speaking here personally uh, from the position of the title of an elder. Um, so John the elder is writing to the elect lady and her children. And there's different thoughts on what that means. And, and again, I'm just kind of sharing to you what I have to go through uh, to, to share you all the diff- with you all the different points. And, and, and the different views of what does it mean, who's he talking to when he's talking about writing to the elect lady? You know, some think the elect lady is code for um, a particular congregation, and her children are those people who go to that church, who are a part of that, 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 that church. And in verse 15, if you skip back down there and you look in your Bibles, the children of your elect sister would be referring to believers in another congregation. And so the elect lady and sister could be referring to congregations and the children are the people who go to that church. Now, why would he be talking like that? Again, there's persecution going on. And so this is, this is quite far removed from the early apostolic writings. And so uh, this is at the end of the first century. There's a lot of heavy stuff going on. And so it might mean, uh, it might mean that John needs to write in code because the messenger could be caught. And if he, if he grabs... If they grab the letter out of his hands and they have, hey, this is written to Mark and, and, to, you know, and to all these types of people that start laying them out, uh, they could be in danger. But notice that John does not erase Jesus Christ or the gospel in, in, in his letter. He's not trying to cover up the gospel. He's just protecting the identities, if this were the case, of the people. So he calls her the elect lady and her children. He calls himself the elder. And everybody in the church would understand who is being spoken to. So that's one thought. The other thought is that John is literally writing to a, an, a woman in, in, a, in, in a church, and she's 
the elect, he calls her the elect lady. And her children are literally her children. And at the end in verse 15, uh, 13, when her sister's kids say hello, they're literally her sister's kids who John somehow knows saying hello. So now let's, let's not divide over this. <laughs> doesn't make a difference. Uh, I mean, I guess it does, but I don't want to take it lightly. But if you take one way on it, uh, if you take the wrong way, uh, opposite of me, then it's okay. I'll still fellowship with you. <laughs> it's okay. It's one of those things where you can look at it both ways, actually, and still get the benefit because he has an actual thought he's trying to get across that really applies to all of us. And so both of these are plausible. They have great implications. And so if you take one way, it's okay. But you're not going to miss the central message. And so just to let you know, I tend to lean towards, and this departs from some, uh, I tend to think that he's, he's speaking in code. I think he is talking to the church, is the elect lady, and I think his kids are the congregation. That's my personal view. So when I'm teaching through this, I'm kind of taking that angle on it. Um, and I think this for a couple reasons. Uh, first it is because it isn't out of the norm for the church to be called uh, a lady. She's the bride of Christ in the New Testament. So that it really isn't outside of the norm for an apostle to refer to the church as a lady. And um, secondly, during this time, again, persecution's going on. And so if he's going to identify people in the church, it would be important that uh, he maybe held back their identities, referring to the congregation as the elect lady and the people in there as children is totally normal. And thirdly, you know, it's kind of weird in verse 13, hey, your elect sister's kids say hello. Well, what about your elect sister? You know, maybe they weren't on speaking terms or whatever it was, you know. No, I, I, think, I think the idea is, it, to me, it's like, why do the nieces and nephews say hello, but her, you know, maybe she's dead, who knows. But I just tend to think, as you look at the end of all these different epistles, you see at the end of all of them, hey, so-and-so says hello. The church says hello. The church greets you. The church greets you. So I just tend to think that's what's going on here. Um, but either way, it's okay. The message is still the same. Now, regarding the elect lady, calls her the elect lady. Don't worry, we're going to get to the meat here in just a second. The term elect here means chosen, and that is exactly what believers in Jesus Christ are. We have been chosen by God to receive eternal life through faith in his Son, um, the scriptures are clear that salvation is a sovereign work of God. Salvation was not our idea. We did not initiate salvation. God initiated it with us. He came to us. He sent his son. He provided the sacrifice. He wooed us. He called us and all those things. And so we, this is a, salvation is a sovereign work of God. And we are a chosen people. And we see several times in the New Testament the believers are called chosen. Uh, just a few, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, John 15, 1 Peter 2, so on. And we see all that. And yet, at the same time, I have to throw this in there. What happens? We find out that man is responsible for God to believe. John says how many times in his gospel to believe? 49 times. And so, believers are the chosen. Chosen are believers. <laughs> They're kind of synonymous for, with, with one another. And so the bride of Christ is a chosen lady. So that's who he's writing to, the chosen lady, the elect lady. And in the middle of verse 1, John then expresses his love for whom I believe the church. He expresses his love for her. He just wants you to know, man, I love you. Look what he says there about him, and about the, I'm sorry, the, the elect lady and her kids. He says, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. John reaffirms his love for the church. I believe he's talking to the church here. And even if it was an individual, he's referring, referring hey, I love you in the Lord, in the truth. And that's the, the truth we share as a believer. This is important because um, notice how, what, what godly love is, is. What's the context of godly love? It's according to truth. It's according to truth. John emphasizes that godly love is according to truth. And this is important because John is going to be speaking to the church about how they're exercising their love and hospitality and how the enemy is going to be taking advantage of their love and their acceptance of people into their homes and all this type of stuff. They are being way loving but not discerning. 
And that's a really important issue that we'll, we'll sweep back around to. But John says, the love I have for you is according to truth. And not only does John say, I love you according to truth, but guess what? Also, all who know the truth. And that's what he already said in 1 John. I'm not going to reteach it. Listen, we love each other because we have a shared truth. A shared truth. And that truth is concerning Jesus Christ. That's what binds us together. That's the command that God gives us to love one another is according to the truth of who Jesus is. Love has a context. And that context is truth according to the word of God about Jesus. And John says of that truth in verse 2, because of the truth that abides in us and it's going to be in us forever. So think about this. He's writing here and he's setting himself up for what's coming. He's going to write about this, but in the very beginning, the word, word truth has been repeated a lot. You saw that? And the word love's in there too. So there's a truth that binds believers together. It's a known truth, he says there. It's a truth that people know. It's a truth that abides in a believer forever. And that truth, as we will see, is centered on the person of Jesus Christ according to the Word of God. And it is in the context of that shared truth about Jesus that God's love is manifested among believers. Pretty wild. That's going to be key. We'll see in just a minute. And so John greets the elect lady. And here in verse 3, he says in the typical apostolic greeting, it says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Christ Jesus, uh, from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, in truth and in love. Now, again, he hammers home truth and love again. Believers have been given, notice what he, we've been given by God. What has God given every sing, single believer? What did he say there? He's given you grace. He's given you mercy. He's given you peace. And notice who it's from? The Father and the Son. Can't separate those two in the gifts that He's given us. God has given His church, those who believe upon Him, He's given you grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. He's given you mercy. He hasn't, that means He hasn't given you what you do deserve, what I deserve. A little different there, huh? Giving us what we don't deserve, grace, giving us what we, you know, withholding what we do deserve, mercy. It's a real simplistic view of it, but that's the idea behind it. And, and we have peace with God. God's given us peace with Him. Man, let that sink deep. This is what God's given you. Grace, mercy, and peace. That's pretty awesome. And how we need to know that in the times we're living in. How many of you have not been given any any grace or mercy and peace lately from the world. But we need to know that God the Father and God the Son have extended that to us. You know, it often doesn't feel like it, but realize this. Grace, peace, and mercy has a context. We experience it more when we walk in truth and love. That's what John is actually saying here. He's saying, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ in truth and love. That's how it's manifested. So, Father, uh, what, a, what a beautiful introduction there. He's writing to the church. He reminds her that she's loved. That she has grace, mercy, and peace from God. She's loved by the other believers. Now, what, a, what a great introduction. Now, his introduction is foreshadowing what he wants to talk about. Let's get into it. So, and specifically, he's talking about love must be according to truth, especially when it comes to hospitality, okay? So in verses 4 through 6, John's going to remind the elect lady, the church, of the truth. He's going to remind him of old truths. He's going to remind her as he does. And he starts out in verse 4 by how encouraged he is. He starts out with encouragement. How many of you like a little bit of encouragement? Yeah, me too. But he starts out in verse 4, says, I greatly rejoice to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now remember, John is 90-something. He even wants to travel to go see them, we find out. So he's a traveling, well, maybe he's going to get the RV going. Who knows what's going on? But he's in Ephesus, most likely, at this time, right? And his only way of communication is either someone has come from where they went, or there's a letter that's been, that's been handed back and forth. 
And somehow John has heard how this church is doing, or at least individuals in the church. He says, man, I greatly rejoice. Someone came to me with news, and they started telling me about certain individuals in the church, and I heard that they were walking with the Lord. I just want you to know how, how, how overjoyed I am that some of you, your children, were walking in the truth. Parents know what we're talking about, right? When their kids aren't walking in the truth, your heart is grieved. When they are, you're overjoyed. You're greatly overjoyed. Amen? Now, when I hear the phrase, some of your children, my, I immediately like cancel out all the rejoicing and I go to, what's the problem? Anybody else like that? You know, cup is half empty. That's all right. Pessimism is much more rewarding. I, uh, because like, hey, something good happened, you know? Never mind. That's just, that's a worldly joke. That's just me being certain. That's the one thing you'll remember. Um. You know, I started wondering who wasn't walking the church, but you know what? As I was looking at this, it very well could be that some of them is not referring to the ones who weren't. That wasn't his emphasis. It's like, hey, I, I, was, I was being told about certain people. Hey, I heard some of you guys are walking in the truth. Like, I didn't hear the whole situation. I heard some of you were. And I think that's kind of what was going on here. John says, some of you are walking in the truth. And I think John was genuinely rejoicing over the good news he heard. And I think that's great. But nevertheless, John is still concerned because he doesn't know about everybody in the church. He doesn't know how they're all walking, maybe. The ones who he didn't hear about, how were they walking? And so in verse 5 and 6, what he does is he reminds them of a truth they already know. A good pastor, a good apostle here is always going to remind you of truth you already know. Truth you already know. Now, you're going to read this and go, we just read this, man, in 1 John. Yeah, and he's going to say it again. So he goes now in verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. Right? How many times have you come to church and go, was that just this, did Matt just give the same message he gave last time? You know, I know some of you are, Kind of fast-forwarding, you guys, you know, everybody at home right now, you're all uh, gotten, gotten up and getting something as soon as I mentioned, love one another. But obviously, some of them were walking the truth, and some of them were not. And I think on any given day, we need to be reminded of the truth to follow the Lord, the command of the Father, the command of the Son to love one another. And then John reminds them of what that actually looks like. When you hear love one another, I think the culture has something to say about what that is. It'll tell you what it wants you to think that is, and your heritage will, your, your family dynamics will, will influence that. But we want to know what God thinks of, of, of what it means to love one another. What does biblical love look like? What does godly love look like? John says it in verse 6, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And so. The love that believers share is to be according to truth. The truth of what God says, his commands. John says, this is love that you obey what God says. That's how we define what love is and how to be loving and what, what is defined as love in the context of our fellowship, in the context of those we invite in and accept, and those we reject, and all that type of stuff. I really like what Pastor Damien Kyle said regarding all this. He said, genuine love will not compromise the truth. Genuine love will never go beyond the boundaries of Scripture. It will never compromise Scripture in order to express itself. It will require, uh, if it requires compromise to express this love, then it is no longer a godly or genuine love. Pretty interesting. And we're being told what love and what love isn't in this culture a lot lately. Church, this is an exhortation for us today as we are in danger of seeking love because we want to love, but not according to truth. We need to know that love has boundaries. Love has a context for a believer. It's according to truth of what God says and how he commands. And when we do this, when we uh, 
seek to just love without the boundaries of truth, without knowledge, what we do is we start, we open ourselves to all kinds of philosophies and all kinds of worldly ideas that are promoted as love by the world around us, but are not according to the truth of Scripture. And that's sadly what has happened a lot. We see it all over the time. We see, we hear of churches that like, you know, when they talk about certain things, they, they will never mention sin, right? In attempt to what? To be loving and kind and non-condemning and all this type of stuff. Now, we understand that scriptures say don't judge, lest you be judged, right? You read a couple verses later and it says don't give to the pearls, don't give pearls before swine and, you know, what is, what is holy to the dogs. Well, how am I supposed to know who the dogs are and what swine is and what is precious isn't if I don't have some kind of judgment going on? So there's more to the story. Right? And we're actually called to judge one another within the church. We're not called to judge the world. That's up to the, up to the Lord. But we're to like, inspect one another. Start with the log in your own eye and then go work, work your way out. Start, you know, this is a lifelong project, right? But I mean, we're to judge ourselves. See if you're in the faith. And then also we're to go into take the plank out of our own eyes, judge ourselves so that we may help one another. Right? And Paul even talks about like you're going to be judging angels. You can't judge yourself. Get, let's get going here. So there's a context where we need to be able to be discerning. Love isn't this weird nebulous thing. It actually is defined. And yes, there's also the danger of the opposite where we have truth and no love. And Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, where you have a church that was all truth, no, no love. And that makes, the, that makes the truth unattractive. It makes it a binging gong. It makes it harsh. It makes it unbearable. And you'll find yourself, on, you'll, you'll have a propensity towards one or the other. Anybody notice that about other people, not yourself? Yeah, I mean, there you go with your judgment again. Paul addresses that. But I think the, one of the greater threats, I think the greater threat is not the legalism. I, I think the greater threat in the church today, in the church at large, at least in the evangelical church, it seems to be love void of, love void of truth. And that's what the world is shoving down our throats. Love and acceptance without context. And somehow the idea that we, you know, that we love the world by becoming the world, it's wildly popular. And so does our worship reflect what secular gatherings are? And I know that's not a real thing, but uh, yeah, I mean, a real great indicator. But I mean, why, why are we thinking we're going to go catch sinners with sin? You're going to catch sinners with sin, right? What attracted you to Christ? Man, it was the Spirit of God and someone preaching the truth by how they lived and the, and the communication they shared in love. But they didn't compromise from the truth. They shared the truth and the Holy Spirit convicted your heart, convicted my heart that we needed a Savior and we turned from the darkness towards the light. We were called out of the world to the Lord. Well, that's not a very successful church model. No, it's not. You're not going to have the pews filled. It's just not going to be, because who wants to hear that, right? And it's important that we do have that truth and love, both working at the same time. Love, uh, truth without love is, is harsh. It's still truth, but it's harsh. It's unattractive. And we saw Jesus live this out perfectly. We all want to be like Jesus. But also, love without truth is not godly love. It's not what he's called us to. So when Paul said, I become all things to all people, do you think he was saying, and I compromise the holiness of God, and I compromise sin, and I compromise all this? No, he's just talking about, listen, I'm going to let insignificant cultural things not get in the way. So if I'm going to go to a culture that dresses a certain way, and it's, it's not reflecting about a worship or, or some kind of thing like that, I'm just going to let that go because that's not the essential thing. But never does it mean like, hey, I'm going to go win 
win alcoholics by going to become one. No, that's, that's not what he's talking about. That's not love. That's actually feeding into the deception. And so Jesus put on flesh, but he never abandoned his holiness. He never abandoned obedience to the Father. And, his, and the church should reflect the same thing. There should be a love, a willingness to go to and to be and to reach out and all these things, but never abandoning these things. To love without truth is to be open to deception. And that is what John is concerned with here, that the believers in this fellowship were in danger of being deceived because false teachers and false prophets were taking advantage of the church's loving hospitality. That's what was going on in this culture. Their nature of being a loving people, an accepting people, a hospitable people, a people that desired for people to come to fellowship in Christ. Amen? Don't we all have that desire? Listen, love doesn't compromise the truth. It upholds it. We've got to remember that. So in verses 7 through 11, John gives them a warning about this danger. Let's just, it says there, verse just 7, it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. We saw back in 1 John chapter 2, John speaks about those who went out from John, from the apostles, but they were never a part of them. And they went out and they latched onto these false doctrines, and then they started to use that clout and that recognition they had of have been a spiritual, with the spiritual group. They went out and they started infiltrating churches. And this is what was going on. And, and that would have been the beginnings of the Gnostic heresies because they were denying that Jesus came in the flesh. We talked about that already, that, that the Gnostics believe that, that when Jesus was born, he wasn't born God in the flesh, that actually the, some kind of phantom spirit came upon him at his baptism. And then before his death, that phantom spirit left. And so Jesus was just a man. And John's combating it, that idea there. He's saying, listen, there's guys among you, there's false Christs that have gone around that don't believe what you believe about Jesus. But it seems like they do. John's saying these deceivers were out there and they're going from town to town. Such a one is a deceiver, John says, and is the Antichrist. It's not the Antichrist. It's, uh, it means it is Antichrist. It's against Christ. It's working against Christ. It's the spirit of Antichrist. There is an Antichrist, a person who is coming, but this is the spirit of Antichrist that is in the world. John's already talked about this. I'm going to re- not going to reteach through that. But John says they're deceivers and they're Antichrist. That doesn't sound very loving, John, does it? Does that sound very loving? No, no, it doesn't sound loving, John. It's not very accepting. But guess what? He wouldn't be loving. He wouldn't be faithful to the Lord. He wouldn't be a loving apostle with devotion to the Lord Jesus if he didn't point out that threat. Verse 8, John tells them what they need to do. This is what you need to do, church. Watch out. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for uh, but may win a full reward. He says there, first off, be watchful. Watch yourselves. Is it interesting that John's just repeating what he heard Jesus say? Remember the night when Jesus was betrayed? What did Jesus say to John, Peter, James three times? Be watchful. Watch and pray. And what did John do with Peter and James? Siesta. Three times. Jesus went to sleep three times. They just heavy. It's as they're weary. They were weary with sorrow. There was a lot of excuses there. But they weren't watchful. Jesus says, temptation's coming. They weren't watchful. They went to sleep. And here John is just turning around and says, listen, same thing's going on. You've got enemies on the prowl. They're looking for your weakness. Be watchful. Watch yourselves. Why? And he says there, so you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. John's not talking about losing your salvation here. This is not losing your salvation. It's saying losing your reward. Listen, if the enemy can't take your salvation, he's going to take your rewards. And this is how I look at it. He's going to get your life on track. So he's going to get you busy about the things that you need to not be busy about so that you're not glorifying God in your life. 
That's a really easy tactic, right? If you can just get the church off script, that's the idea. You know, so when we take the bait and start to follow stuff that takes us off track of who we are and what we're called to be to the glory of God, we're in danger of losing our full rewards. You know, believers are going to be rewarded according to our faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with this much. Now here you go some more. So in, 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 I believe somehow in here, our capacity in the future to worship God and experience God and enjoy God, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a salvation issue. There's an entry ticket. But our, our, our ability to enjoy eternity is going to be based upon our faithfulness to the Lord. We find out that it is God who actually is working in us and will, to willing to do that. But at the same time, we're responsible to follow after him. And the enemy's tactic is to come there and destroy your witness, to destroy your life, to take you off base, to get you just so focused on one weird thing that you're, not, you're no earthly good for the Lord in all these other ways. And he's so crafty at doing that. You know, the enemy might not be able to take your salvation, but he certainly seeks to destroy you, your witness, your joy and rewards. Paul spoke of this to the Colossians. Just a little phrase here in Colossians 2.18. He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on uh, asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in details about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And he goes on about all this stuff. Says, Listen, don't get dragged over into the worship of angels. What are you doing? Don't, this is just stay focused on Jesus Christ. You know, don't get off in, into all the weird prophetic stuff that can, you know, go stay focused on the Lord. Don't get all, now I'm not saying that, I mean, the Lord lays out prophecy in Scripture. But you know we can get real weird in that in the church, right? Just, and if you don't know, then you might be weird in that, you know? <laughs> so just let you know, you know? <laughs> you know, everybody has a crazy family member, right? And if you don't have one, then guess what? <laughs> yeah. Anyways, don't get ripped off. Be watchful. Amen? You know, what are you to watch for? Verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. He makes it very simple. This is, this is the indicator. Look at the people that you're inviting and into your life to be a spiritual influence. Are they abiding into the teachings of Christ? Who are you fellowshipping with? What kind of influences are you allowing into your, your home, your mind, all these types of things? It says, everyone who goes on ahead does not abide in the teachings of Christ. He does not have a God. Who, who has a different translation there? Everyone who goes on ahead. What is? Who transgresses. Right? Yeah, that's transgresses, right? And so, so basically everyone who transgresses does not abide in the teachings of Christ. They're going outside of what the Lord's teaching. This is where we get weird and, and why we want to be men and women and students of the Word. We don't want to go beyond what it says. You know, uh, we, want to, we want to stay within what the Lord says about things. Because the temptation for a human being is to become sensational and draw attention to themselves by having some kind of secret knowledge and special understanding and all this type of stuff. But to sit there and say, listen, you know, here's the revelation I have. The same revelation God gave them. Let's read it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, it's a temptation to jump out there. But we want the Lord to be glorified. Don't go beyond. Don't go ahead. Don't transgress uh, the teachings of Christ. Anyone does that doesn't have God. But whoever abides in the teachings has both the Father and the Son. And so basically a way to discern between believers and non-believers is whether they're not they abide in the teachings of Christ. Right? Do they remain in the teachings of Christ? Are they obedient to the Lord? Love has a context. Do they abide in truth? Do they believe it? Is it lived out according to the truth? Verse 10. Okay, here's another practical. A real, he's starting to drill home on what is actually going on. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what do you do? The idea is there's someone who's trying to spiritually influence you. So what, what do you do? Do not receive him into your what? Your house. Or give him any what? 
greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, this is getting to the hardest stuff. John is writing uh, because what was happening again in John's day is you had these, these guys who were going from town to town, and a lot of them would, you know, instead of being, you know, staying at the inn, which was often associated with immoral type stuff, the church would see people who were supposedly doing God's work, and they'd say, well, come stay with us. Come stay with us. Oh, you're a pastor, you're an evangelist, you're a Christian. You're this and that. Come stay with us. And that is a normal Christian response. That is hospitality. That's something that that Christians do out of the love of their heart and their love for the body of Christ. But what was happening is the enemy was taking advantage of that love. And he was taking advantage of people who were not discerning. And that was what John's concern was here. Now, that believers were inviting these men into their homes, not knowing that they were actually wolves. They weren't being discerning. They weren't asking them about their doctrine. They weren't asking about their teaching. They weren't listening to their messages, uh, you know, and finding out what was really going on. They were just inviting them in, and all of a sudden, they were leading the prayer at the table, and all of a sudden, they're having side conversations with their kids, and all of a sudden, they're invited to Bible study, and they're connected to the group, and they started sharing all this stuff, and before you know it, man, we've got a problem. Because they're dynamic, they're likable, they're all these types of things, and people are starting to get connected to them. That's how the enemy works. Now, I don't believe this is speaking about having non-Christians over to your house for dinner, okay? Like, we're to be a light and a witness to, to the world around us. That's, that's not, I don't think that's what this is talking about. Um, remember way back, in, in another example, remember way back, I don't know if you guys remember this, remember when, when we, there was like Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, and you'd have family members over to your house, and you would all eat together around a table. You guys remember way back then in those days? It's not talking about not having family members, although you could probably quote this verse if you needed to, to get out of a hard situation. You know, some of them aren't, don't believe in the Lord, right? And they're in your house. So it's, I don't think it's talking about that. But what this is speaking about is showing hospitality towards people who are speaking influence, seeking spiritual influence in and among you or in this church who are not a walking according to the truth. This is why people just don't, you know, why, man, why can't just, I just get up there and lead a Bible study? Why can't I just teach what I want, you know, to the church in my own house? It's like, well, if you're teaching our sheep as elders, guess what? We're going to need to find out who you are and what you're teaching. We need to get to know you. Well, that's kind of biblical. Yeah, because we love our sheep, and we want to make sure it's hard enough. You know how many crazy conversations you guys have in your own houses, you know? But it's talking about people want to have spiritual influence in your home. So don't let the Jehovah's Witnesses into your house to give your family a Bible study. Don't let the Mormons come in the door. And, and notice, I notice lately, the Mormons have shifted their, their, their tactics. They no longer want to talk about doctrine. They just want to talk to you and then ask you, hey, can we help you out? Can we come work in your yard? No. Don't do it. Wow, oh, but I want to be loving. Maybe I can influence them. Listen, John knows better than you. Don't do it. Don't do it. What does it say? Don't give them the greeting. Don't give them a hug and a high five. Don't be cordial and all this type of stuff. You can be kind and respectful and, and representing Christ. We want to make sure that that's going on, that we're not, you know, worldly. But don't pretend like they're there to be your buddy. They're there to deceive and influence you. They're antichrist. Does that sound unloving, or does that actually sound like what just John just said? That's harsh, isn't it? You see, the tendencies, we want to just keep giving in. And so you're going to come to situations where you're going to have an unbeliever wants to pray over the food. Don't give them the opportunity. They're going to lead something spiritually. Don't give them the opportunity. Oh, that's controlling. No, it's loving. Actually being obedient. This is hard stuff. Don't let unbelieving, you know, it's like 
someone starts talking about their philosophy. This happens at funerals all the time. Because we do open mic and someone starts sharing something about something. You know, as soon as someone starts, I, I say it ahead of hand, listen, we're, we're not going to disregard glorifying God by honoring this person. That's the, that's the greatest thing. And so if someone starts talking about something and starts sharing their philosophy on where people are and all this stuff, I am going to be on that like a rat on a Cheeto. That's going to stop because we're done, right? <laughs> Sorry about that. That's another one. But I think we, it's, we have to be, I know that's kind of un-American or whatever it is, but Uncle Bob doesn't get to pray for dinner for Christmas because it's his turn and in your home. You know what I'm saying? When we do these kinds of things, here's the heart behind it. I know there's a lot of like what-if scenarios, but when we do these kinds of things, when we just kind of go, oh, well, I'll just, just let it go and let it be loving and, and just kind of chalk it up to that, what we do is we open up ourselves and those around us to voluntary, voluntary deception. We start to allow influence in our own homes. We abandon the truth and, and the love that God has us to walk in. We end up giving a platform in our own homes for deception. And John says to the church, if they don't hold to the teachings about Christ, don't receive him. Don't let them in. Don't even greet them. You know, it doesn't seem very loving, but actually it isn't loving to invite deceivers to deceive the body of Christ, to deceive your home or to perpetuate the, the deception in their hearts or in yours, okay? This is, this is hard stuff. To do so, John says, is to join in their work. Jesus said, you're for me or against me. Church, we might not be housing false teachers. This is 2,000 years later. False teachers have decided to come in other ways. They're crafty and they're good. You know? How about when it comes to inviting spiritual influences into our homes, into the lives of our children, into our minds, and into the church? We have to ask ourselves, do they hold to the teachings of Jesus, the truth about Jesus? Is it lived out in their lives? Is it manifested in love and obedience, right? It's so easy to be nonchalant about this, especially in the day and age we live in. But You know, I just think it's, we're living in a, in a crazy time when we don't think twice about sending our kids off to college. I'm not knocking education. I think it's wonderful. But if you think they're going to pop out Christians on the other end without a foundation, you've got to really think these things through. Because you want them to have a good life. Think about it. Know their character. Are you in dialoguing with them? Are you able to work through this stuff with them? It's hard. Or, or the songs we listen to. Oh, that's a great beat to it. Just let it go. You know, music is extremely powerful. The things we remember. How many of you remember songs you should like have thought, forgotten of? They're dumb and they're long ago. But there was a philosophy being spoken of by someone there. Music is the new, the new philosophy of the age, basically the artist. And, and through art and media, false teaching and all this stuff is influencing our kid. And we wonder, what, what is working so counterproductive? Right? We go to church, we pray, we blah, blah, blah. Well, what is the truth that's being reinforced, the, the lie that's being reinforced in the minds in our homes? And it's just the way it is. I, I see this in my own life, how I look at these things and go, man, that isn't really that, what is this saying? And I always have to, you know, with John and Ruth or whatever, we're always trying to go, you know, what, what's the saying, you know? What's the philosophy behind this? So we've got to be watchful. We've got to be discerning and, and allow the Lord's truth to be our guardrails for love. Watch yourselves. Don't even greet them, he says. And so that's the message there. And then he ties it up there in verse 12. He says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use pen and ink. Instead, I'll see you on Zoom. Oh, no, sorry. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face. Why? So that our joy may be complete. 
There's no substitute for face-to-face fellowship, church. There's no substitute for being in each other's lives. We've got to be discerning. Jesus knows best. There are times when we need to be sick and stay home and all that kind of stuff. Do that, but don't let that be the secondary action. Be with, be with brothers and sisters in Christ. Face-to-face. Here's John at 90. He's in a very... Um, Interesting place where he wants to come to them. Notice he's the initiator there. I want to come to you. You're my joy. I can't wait to be with you and hang out with you. That's fellowship. Notice he's talking about fellowship. He's talking about hospitality, the guide rails of love in all this. And then there in verse 13, he says, The children of your elect sister greet you. So John lets them know, hey, brothers and sisters here in Ephesus or wherever John was, they're saying hi. They love you. And I think that's the way we feel about other brothers and sisters uh, when we don't see them. Hey, let them know I love them. I'll miss them. I want to see them. Amen? All right. We live in a, in a crazy time. And the tactics of the enemy, although they've changed, the heart is the same. It's deception. So be, be watchful, church. Take, take aim. Let the Spirit lead you and guide you in how you interact with people. And you know what? The world's not going to like us sometimes. That's okay. I'm not concerned about the world's like of us. I'm concerned about the Lord's glory. And I assume that God can save the wickedest of sinners um, through those who've been saved by grace. Amen? You know, may He, he use us. Lord God, I, I pray that Your truth would resound and it would be full of, of love, Lord. I pray Your church would be love with truth. God, let these things abide in us. Lord, correct us. Lord, help us to know the truth. Your word is truth, your son said. And so we, we pray that we would be men and women who know you, who know your heart, who know your word, and that we would wrestle with one another uh, in these things, that we would come to the greatest acts of love in our lives that would express your very nature towards one another. And I pray at the same time, Lord, we would be wise in in knowing the tactics of our enemy and that you would supernaturally protect us and give us grace in this age we live in. May your word shoot forward through this body, God, whom you love so much. So we just rejoice in you, Father. We thank you for the time you've given us here on this earth, Lord. Thank you for sending your Son and for pulling us out of darkness. And we pray that um, in this age, which seems like we're retreating, but I pray that your church would shine even more brightly, Lord. Be more bold and more courageous in these times we live in. So we pray for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.